You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. One of the most dangerous mental errors that you don't even have any clue you're making. For instance, there was a survey that asked, do you think you're an above average driver? And nine out of 10 people thought they were above average. By the way, some of those people including me, are way below average drivers, but most people don't realize it. And if you tell them, listen, you're not an above average driver, they will argue with you to the death. And so that's one example of one of these 15 or so mental errors that I'm about to talk about with Sahil Bloom. He's been on the podcast before to talk about the other side of this, mental things that can help your life. But these are mental errors that you should be aware of that everyone makes all the time every day. He did a thread about it on Twitter. We're talking about it in depth on the podcast. The most dangerous mental errors that you have no clue that you're making. I asked this question once. So I had on the podcast, this guy, Mac lethal. He does these super fast raps. If you watch him on YouTube. Okay. And he gets millions of views on each one. And I asked him, how do you feel when you do a bad one? And he says, I don't care because, because they're bad, no one sees them. So he doesn't worry about those. He just goes on to doing the next good one. It's so true. I mean, it's sort of a variation of the spotlight effect, which we'll get into, but it's like this, this general fear that people have about sharing on social media, I think is just massively unfounded because by definition, if you share something that sucks and no one likes it, no one retweets it, et cetera, no one saw it. And so you can either delete it and it's just like it never happened or you don't have to worry about it because literally no one's looking and no one cares. You know, and you could just as a social media strategy, you could do this in real time, like back in 2012 or 2013, if I wrote an article and then tweeted it and, and I knew just statistically how many people would respond to a tweet in a certain amount of time after five minutes, if I didn't see the responses, I would delete the tweet and maybe use it as an opportunity to rewrite the article or whatever, because you could use, you know, right away, how many people are looking at something. Yeah. I mean, I do this all the time. Uh, I think this is just like smart use of your resources, by the way, which is like, um, I will tease ideas on Twitter, either in comments under someone else's tweet and see kind of the traction that it gets and the amount of engagement it gets. And sometimes those things end up getting a lot more engagement than I thought. And then I know, oh, wow, that's probably something I should go write more about because people found it interesting or no one cared about it. In which case, if I thought it was a great idea, clearly I've been proven wrong by the masses now. And so I should probably bag the idea. I'll write, but I, I will literally do that all the time, um, tease out ideas and then get the data from it and figure out whether it's something that's worth going deeper on because it's something that resonates broadly. Well, you know, and I want to um, talk about one of your recent threads about the types of mental errors we all make. But what you just said is very interesting because you do these Twitter threads about concepts that are interesting to you. And let's say some 
are shared a lot and some aren't shared much at all. You could use that as almost like this gigantic focus group if you're writing a book. So you could write a book like, you know, the 10 critical things you need to know for success, whatever. And just take the 10 most popular Twitter threads you have and expand on them. And then you kind of know this book is going to be a popular book. I think it's the new way of creating longer form content, by the way. So like Morgan Housel, who I don't know if you've had on the on the podcast no. yet. If, if not, you should. Um, yeah, he's a smart guy. I really yeah, like him. Psychology of Money um, was, his, was his book, and it sold over a million copies. And the funny thing about that book is that it was not something that he sat down and wrote as a book. It was a combination of blog posts that he had written over the course of maybe five years. And it was literally like word-for-word blog posts that he had already written as short chapters within this book. And when he sat down to write the book, literally all it was was putting these blogs together and maybe some light editing and shifting. And so he knew based on the traction that all those blog posts had gotten, that they were highly interesting to people, that they were shareable, um, and that putting them together would be something that people would find valuable. And so you sort of de-risk and shorten the time to doing this entire process. So you're, it, it's kind of like a way of, it's not shortcutting, it's like a way of kind of gaming the entire system around writing a book by leveraging social. 100% of my books are written like that, or almost 100%. And it's not a bad, like it almost seems like that's a weird technique, but A, Nobody's read anymore the blog posts from 2013 or 2014. And if they're evergreen, they're just as important now as ever. And second, you you edit them to include new information, a few more stories. You, you make it seamless between chapters. So you do still a fair amount of editing. But it, again, it's a way of focus grouping the best chapters in your book. And the technique works. Like I know for a fact that it works. I've seen, I've sold up, you know, millions of copies of books that that say so. Yeah, it's a um it's sort of a variation on like a broader point that I've seen people make, you know, this whole idea of like hard work being um the key to everything and it's like hard work versus smart work. Um and I saw like I think it was Shane Parrish that talked about this recently, um uh, basically saying you can spend a thousand hours writing a an amazing book or you can spend um 800 hours uh building a big audience and 200 hours writing an okay book. And which one of those two books ends up selling more? And it's probably the latter, actually. And you spent less time writing the book, and it's actually not as high quality, but you were sort of smarter about how to game the distribution side of it. Um, and it's sort of all, all in the same vein of like um, finesse and like creating finesse in the systems that you're operating in, um, I find very interesting. Yeah. And again, an okay book still might be a great book if you have an audience that appreciates the kind of, if you're serving barbecue to an audience who loves sushi, even if you have the best barbecue in the world, it's not going to sell. So Shane might be saying, build an audience that I know likes me. So when I write a book to them, they're going to be much more interested in this book than if I write a better book that's going out to a general audience that doesn't know me, they won't know. And the other aspect of this is people can't determine in general what a great book is versus a good book. And unless it's like a thousand percent better than the other book, nobody can tell the difference between 20% better. Like maybe, you know, there's a famous example from the eighties where uh, VHS tapes, which were tapes to record videos, were not as good as Betamax tapes to record videos. And so it's, everybody always talks about how Betamax was better, but VHS won. So the best product doesn't always win. But the reality is Betamax might only have been 10% or 20% better than VHS. No one could tell, I can't tell, you know, 
40 frames per second versus 30 frames per second on a video. So no one could tell. So it doesn't really matter in most cases what's better or not, unless you're like 10x better, like a thousand percent better. Then people could tell. Yeah, I think it's uh, the framework I have for this is like a good product and bad packaging goes nowhere. And an okay product and great packaging goes somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so it really matters. Like, I mean, I've written things just in the context of my own writing where I think it's f- like phenomenal insight, rich writing, but it was a really shitty package that I put it in. Like I didn't weave it together correctly. It wasn't punchy. The hook wasn't good. It just didn't come together in the right way. And it went nowhere. Well, and I- for, for me, when I see that, I'm like, oh, okay, that's an opportunity. I should actually go bring that back and put it into better packaging because it's great insight-rich writing and there's high ROI for someone reading this, but it needs to be in a good package in order for it to work. So you can take a bunch of mediocre writing um, and put it into a great package and a nice-looking book and a nice cover and a great title that's kind of buzzy, and I bet you can do really, really well with it. Yeah, like, um, you, you know the 4-Hour work week by Tim yeah. Ferriss? I, th- I forget what the original title was. I'm trying to... Find it. It was something like, you know, Adventures of a Drug Dealer. Yeah, it was something It was something really, really weird. Um, I actually listened to a podcast yesterday that he talked about this. There was also one really? that was like lifestyle hacking, something like that. Like lifestyle hacking your life. Or so, like it was really bad title. There was like Adventures of a Drug Dealer or something like that was one of them for sure. Uh, yeah, let me just see. He talks about it on a podcast with Tim Urban. Um that I was literally listening to yesterday, actually. So it's funny that you bring that up. I can't, I can't find it, but it was, yeah, you're right. It was, it was this hugely horrible title. And then he basically um, used social media to test out what a good title would be in the four-hour work week he hit on. And of course, I mean, the book is good beyond the title, but uh, that def- he, he attributes part of the success of the book definitely to him switching the, the title. So, so yeah. packaging is really important. And he's so, the master of packaging too, by the way. Like Tribe of Mentors was literally just packaging one or two insights from every interview he had done and they turned it into a book and it sold a million copies as a New York Times bestseller. It's just like you take the same thing that already existed, turn it into a nice package, people love it. Oh yeah, same with Tools of the Titans is just almost transcripts from his podcast. I'm, I'm in Tools of the Titans and that also was a, a huge bestseller. So he's, he's brilliant at that. He's done that in, in so many cases. But you wrote this thread the most dangerous mental errors that you don't know you're making. And of course I am, I think I do know I'm making it because I make all of these mental errors. Uh, uh, there's, there's a great quote somewhere that nine out of 10 people think they're an above average driver or an above median driver. And that's of course impossible. Only four out of five can be, but I know I'm like the one out of 10. That's like a horrible driver. But again, all of these, mental errors you refer to in this thread, which we're going to talk about some of them. These are cognitive biases. Uh, uh, famously, uh, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics for developing this notion of cognitive biases. And Kahneman would say, there is no way to avoid these cognitive biases. They're always going to occur. And let, let's talk about some of these errors first and see if they could be avoided. But I know for sure also, some of these mental errors that people make, you can use to your advantage. Like, let's talk about the Ikea effect for a second. So you want to describe that one? Yeah. So the Ikea effect is this idea that we attribute more value to things that we've created with our own hands than we would otherwise objectively place value on. Um, And so it's called the Ikea effect because you go build this like 
objectively pretty shitty furniture that IKEA sells, uh, but you put it together. You put it together yourself, and all of a sudden you feel you've placed your own self-worth into this piece of furniture. And so the value of it to you is much higher than it objectively is worth on an open market. Um, I've experienced this, by the way, firsthand with like my first apartment that I got when I took my first job. Um, I had moved out to California and it was like August 23rd or something like that of 2014. And I went to Ikea and I bought, you know, a desk and a bed and all sorts of stuff. And I sat down on a Saturday for the entire day and built all this stuff. And I built it all. I'm like, okay, at Ikea Furniture. I'm not one of these expert gurus. My wife is really good at Ikea Furniture. I'm okay. But I put it all together. It was all standing. It was good. That night, there was an earthquake in Napa, like a quite bad earthquake in Napa, um, like a 6.7 or something. And my bed was rattling around the room pretty bad. And the next morning, I woke up, and all my furniture was standing. And I literally basked in pride for an hour about how great I was as a furniture builder. Like I thought I was amazing. And you could not have come and bought that furniture off me for 2x what I paid for it at that point in time. So I have experienced this firsthand and know, know that it's true. Yeah, and and I think for someone who hates IKEA uh, because I have to build things, probably it's the case. I mean, probably there's something about if you if you hate doing mind, the mindless work of putting together a desk and then you do it, probably it makes sense that your brain says to yourself, oh, there must be some reason I did it. Oh, it's to create more value by me doing it personally because otherwise it's such a hateful thing to do for most people. But there's ways to use this for, for marketing. Like, you know, if you give people, let's say people are ordering, um, you know, T-shirts online and you have them choose the color, well, they're putting a little bit of work into the choice and they're going to value what they buy that much more. Yeah, and they're more likely to come back, right? Like with, I mean, IKEA obviously is the classic example of this, but they're saving so much money. Their margins are so much better for the fact that you put this furniture together. Um, and now you do it and you're ascribing a higher value to that piece of furniture that you created than what it's objectively worth. And so now you're more likely to go back because you look at that furniture every day and you say like, wow, that's actually pretty nice. You know, um, that thing's held up really well. I like the way that looks, et cetera. And now I'm going back to Ikea because now I'm associating in my mind this fact that they gave me more value for my money than I thought. Um, and it's just, a, I mean, it's a psychological trick that they're playing, that they're, uh, that they're rolling with. Yeah, and another way to kind of use this maybe is like, let's say you're buying a house and you know, the main, and the owner is showing you around the house. And the main thing they're talking about is how much, uh, how long it took them to do their paint job and how they built the deck and they dug out the area for the swimming pool. And then they charge this huge amount for their house. You, you kind of know because of the Ikea effect that they're probably overvaluing the price of the house. And there's a lot of room for negotiating down, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, t it ties kind of to this whole idea of anchoring too, where I think like people have now set this number in their mind of what this stuff is worth and, and, um, you know, and how you think about the negotiation process, but certainly, I mean, it, it cuts both ways, um, as with all of these cognitive biases. I wonder how you can use it in writing or social media, how you can get the Ikea effect made, you know, you know what I do a little when I do public speaking is I, I kind of know what I want to talk about, but I'll, I'll give the audience a choice. I can either talk about X or Y and I'll make what I want to talk about. Let's say what I want to talk about is the Y category. I'll make that slightly more attractive. So I know that people are going to choose that. 
but still people feel like they've made a choice and they're participants in my talk a little bit. And so it gives them a chance to enjoy it more. Yeah, it's like the... Um do you remember those create your own adventure books? Yeah, choose that, your own uh, adventure. Have his yeah, it's like um, it's sort of like that, right? Like you have this amazing enjoyment of the experience of reading one of those as a kid um, because you felt like you were part of the creation process of that adventure that you were engaging in. It's that same principle that's just playing out in all these different ways. I, I think it's an interesting idea of like making a speech more engaging because you're giving people interactivity. College professors have done this forever, right? Of like you know, open up the floor to. Um, Hey, should we talk about this or this today? And take a poll, and then go in that direction on on what it is. Like you get people more engaged in the lecture, you break out into um, you know discussion groups or exercise groups. So I, I think it's like broadly speaking, the idea of making people engage in the process of whatever it is that you're creating, whether it's a product or a service, makes them stickier and higher affinity towards that product. Okay, but when does it not work? So, for instance, if someone told me okay, you could buy a car, but they're going to just send you all the parts and you have to build the car. There is no way I'm going to value that car at all. Yeah, I think it goes awry when the upfront cost of doing it is too high or too much of a pain in the ass. There's this company, um, I just had this experience actually, there's this company called Fight Camp um, that's like Peloton for boxing, basically. So it's a connected boxing system that um, you know, it's a boxing bag and you get gloves and it's the whole fun experience. And they have the live kind of streamed classes and you can do boxing workouts. Amazing workout. It's a blast, et cetera. But they ship you this thing and it's the base of it and it's the bag. And in order for the thing to work, there needs to be a bunch of weight in the base of it because otherwise you punch it and the thing goes flying across the room. And the way that you have to do that is you either have to fill it with water, which is around 300 pounds. 300 pounds, as it turns out, is enough for it to not move when my wife punches it. But if I punch it, it still goes flying. So that doesn't work. So the way that you fix that is you have to put sand and water into it. The amount of sand you have to put in is like 500 pounds of sand. So now I have to go to Home Depot I got to get one of those dollies. I got to go lug 500 pounds of sandbags onto this dolly. I got to buy them, I, which it's not covered in the cost. I got to take it back to my house. And now I have to figure out how to get, you know, the 50 pound bags of sand. I have to figure out how to pour those into this tiny little base thing. And it doesn't really explain to you how to do it. Now, I did it, but I know from talking to people who've invested in this company, a lot of people buy this damn thing and then never use it because it's so much of a pain in the butt to actually set it up up front. The IKEA effect for me is that now I'm sure as shit going to be using this thing because I spent an entire Saturday figuring out how to get it set up. But a lot of people just won't. They won't set it up ever. And now you're stuck in this situation where you're like, I shipped this thing and I'm not getting the recurring revenue that I thought I was going to off of it. Yeah. So if, if you make the, the upfront, if you make the work too hard, the IKEA effect doesn't quite work. But like putting together a desk takes like a half hour, an hour. That might not be so bad. But yeah, and they make it easy, right? Like the whole thing is they that they've done really well is they've systematized the entire process. So you feel like it's a little bit of a game. Like it, it sort of feels like a, a a simple. It's like adult Legos at some point. The IKEA stuff. So now, one of the other mental errors you have here, and you have a whole list. It's a great list. Um, this one I find to be the most insidious. Like this one literally turns everybody into a moron, and it's the Dunning Kruger effect which is this idea is it's like sort of the nine out of 10 people think that they're an above average driver. Like everybody thinks they're good at whatever it is they set themselves out to do when reality is they have no sense of whether they're good or not at all. In fact, usually they're really bad at what they're doing. Yeah. It's like the, uh, you know, 
the fact that humans are notoriously incapable of objective evaluation of their own competency levels at anything. Um, and I would add to it, you know, a nuance of notoriously incapable of distinguishing between luck and skill at something is like a, an important kind of add on to it. Yeah. Like, I think about, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give yeah. you an example. Like I notice when an amateur poker player plays a professional poker player and then they win the first hand. Okay. Poker is, is a game of chance, but over the long run, it's a game of skills. Like it's a game of skill pretending to be a game of chance, but with one hand, it's totally chance pretty much. And you know, again, it's over the long run, but I always hear these amateur poker players will say, Oh my God, I can't believe I beat the world series of poker champion in a hand of poker. Like I must be a great poker player. <laughs> it's a great example of it. And actually, I mean, you can go to a casino and do this all day, right? It's like um, poker, blackjack. I think all all of those games where, um, you know, like someone wins a few hands against the house in blackjack and now all of a sudden they think they're like, you know, like Rain a Man counter. or something. <laughs> yeah, they think they're like Rain Man out there that they're going to like take down the house. Um, and then, you know, you go back to them an hour later and they lost all their money or yeah. they lost, you know, whatever the the, the margin is um, that the Look, house always takes. Ca casinos make all their money off of the Dunning-Kruger effect, basically. Like I've, yeah. I've yet to meet a poker player who says I'm a bad poker player. Yeah. So, so does, by the way, like on a larger scale, anyone who um, is taking the other side of trades in the stock market, <laughs> like at, at scale is just making money off the Dunning-Kruger effect because they're just taking money off of, um, you know, off of people who think that they're a genius during a bull market, right? Oh yeah. Well, this is Nassim Taleb's whole approach. Uh, so Nassim Taleb wrote this book, Fooled by Randomness. And his point is the same point you make is that everyone thinks they're a genius in a bull market. Like stocks are going up. And so the people who take more risks, probably because they're worse investors, they make a lot more money in a bull market. And if you always consistently take the other side of their bet, in the long run, these people will lose everything. So. Yeah. You remember like, you know, post COVID, we're talking like May, 2020. Um, uh, the stock market was starting to roar back from from COVID lows, and it literally was a time like Dave Portnoy at Barstool, who's an amazing entertainer, hilarious, you know, a bunch of superlatives that I think are really funny about him, um, was literally going on a live stream every day with a green rubber hammer, and that said like stocks only go up, and he was like slamming the rubber hammer like he was Thor, um, you know, telling people to YOLO into whatever call option of some speculative stock, and it literally worked. Like for 12 months, if you had just followed him, you probably would have made a lot of money. Now, if you had followed him for the last few months, you probably would have lost a whole hell of a lot of money because it clearly hasn't, you know, hasn't continued to play out. But there are times when that happens and all of a sudden everyone thinks they're a stock market genius. All of my friends, you know, who knew nothing about stocks or finance were hitting me up about whatever SPAC they had invested in and made five times their money, et cetera. Um, but eventually with these things, the chickens come to roost, right? Well, but here, here's the interesting thing. All of these cognitive biases, all these mental errors are not fully like 100% errors in the sense that we evolved with these, our brains evolved over the past million years with these cognitive biases for a good reason. Like, let's say, um, you know, I'm a caveman or whatever, 50,000 years ago and I, and, I, and I eat what I kill. Like I have to hunt to, to eat anything it makes sense that when I first start hunting, even if I'm really bad at it, that I think I'm good or I think that I have potential to improve or else I'll die off because I'll just say, ah, this hunting thing's too hard. I'm just going to eat roots and vegetables 
And then eventually I wither away and, and die and don't have kids. So, so my, my genes don't pass on. Like the Dunning Kruger effect, actually, I have such extreme Dunning Kruger effect that it always makes me pursue irrationally things that I'm horrible at until I actually am okay at it. Yeah. I mean, it's just a question like, so, so with Dunning Kruger, I think it's just a question of while you're pursuing it, are you aware that you're horrible at it? Or do you really deep down think that you're amazing at it? Because well, I mean, with all of these, it's like, am I able to objectively know that I am falling? Not that I'm even falling victim to it, like that I am participating in this broader psychological and human evolutionary trend, or do I think I'm amazing at whatever it is that I'm doing? Well, like, like I'll, I'll give you an example. Like 30 years ago in the early 90s, I started, I, w- I was writing, I wrote, like novels and short stories and got thrown out of graduate school because I went to grad school for computer science, but I was like literally writing all the time. And I legitimately thought I was an amazing writer. Like this was going to be a talent that the world will see like never before. And I was looking back at these writings. Now they were horrible. Like I'm embarrassed. Even if I look back at writing, I did 10 years ago, I'm embarrassed how I think how horrible it is, even though then I was getting regularly published and so on. But I think if I didn't, I mean, I pursued writing for so many years that eventually I got a little better at it, which I never would have done if I just said, you know what, this is not, this is not for me. I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm horrible at it. So I will take your example and I'll give you one on the other end of the spectrum, which is me with skiing. So like, I, I think you're done in Kruger, um, your positive point of Dunning-Kruger from an evolutionary perspective is an interesting one. My, I struggle with Dunning-Kruger as a positive evolutionary trait because I think of it in the physical world where you go and do something that you all of a sudden think you're amazing at and then you're likely to die because of it. So like skiing for me, I the first time I went skiing, I was an adult um, and I, you know, I'm a pretty athletic guy. Like I played baseball in college. I like to think at least that I'm still athletic. And so I was like going down some blues, some greens. I was getting a little better during the course of the first day. By the end of that day, I was going down some blacks and I was like relatively proficient, thought I was so legit after doing that first day. Next morning I wake up and I'm with this group of people and a few of them are expert skiers. And they're like, we're going to the top. We're going to go do the double blacks, whatever. And I was like, yo, I'm going because I'm sick at skiing. This is great. And so I go out at like 8 a.m. with these people. Turns out at 8 a.m. ski mountains are pretty icy still. Um, not to mention it's a double black. I immediately just like, I forget what it's called, guard sale, whatever. Like skis go down the mountain. I eat it, you know, roll over. And I was just thinking about it in the context of like Dunning-Kruger got me bad there. And that's a situation where my inability to realize that I was actually pretty mediocre at skiing, I literally could have died. Uh, you know, if you go like hit a tree or something and in the wild with stuff like that, if you all of a sudden think you're a great, you know, hunter and you're not, and you get eaten by a lion, that should be an evolutionary trait that gets weeded out. Yeah, that's true. So I wonder if there's like the correct balance of Dunning-Kruger, like obviously in the case of writing, it was fairly safe to continue writing. Although it did jeopardize any careers I had because for instance, I got thrown out of graduate school in a very employable uh, concept to pursue something in a very non-employable industry, which is writing. And so potentially I had too much, but I, but I survived. And in fact, you know, writing later on helped me and helped my life considerably, but you get, yeah, you're probably right. Like you do need a balance of that 
irrational, boundless optimism um, about yourself and your abilities balanced against this like rational um, level that kind of keeps you away from doing risky things in order to continue to advance. And probably honestly, in, in order to continue to have those chance events that lead to um, that lead to evolution and positive changes in the species as well. The classic example of an evolutionary one, by the way, is fundamental attribution error. Um, yeah, explain which is, that one. Yeah, so fundamental attribution error is it's sort of one of the like meta cognitive biases in my mind, which is just the idea that basically we cut ourselves a break but hold others accountable. So we tend to. Um, when someone else acts a certain way or behaves a certain way, we tend to attribute those actions to their character. Like we judge them fundamentally and we don't think about their situation in context. And then the other end of it is for ourselves, we take our actions, whatever we're doing, our behaviors, et cetera, and attribute them to our context or situation and not to our fundamental character. Yeah, and, and like a classic example is if someone cuts you off in traffic, you think, oh my God, this is the worst person on the planet. What a narcissist. Doesn't think that anyone else has to get anywhere. He just does whatever he wants, breaks the rules. But when you cut someone off, it's like, I'm sorry, I had to do it. I'm late to pick up my kid at the hospital, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and then like it happens every day at work. Uh, you go to work and you know, one of your colleagues um, doesn't show up for a meeting or isn't prepared for a meeting and your immediate reaction is like, this person's lazy, they're not a good teammate, they don't care about us, they don't care about the company, um, et cetera. And then if you show up later, you're unprepared for a meeting, you'd say to yourself, well, you know, I didn't get much sleep last night because my kid was up all night and, um, you know, my family's having health problems, whatever it is, you apply all this context to it. But so you're cutting yourself a break and not for others. Way I think about this um, in an evolutionary context is it was probably quite helpful to think this way because if the first time you met someone they acted a certain way or behaved a certain way that was weird it was probably beneficial to immediately just say that person's a bad person i don't want to be near them uh, i don't want to be a part of it because they're bad that probably kept you alive in certain instances because the person probably there was a chance they were bad and who really cared if you didn't have to interact with them anymore or you kept your guard up when you were around them and it might have kept you alive in certain instances maybe that person was going to come kill you or steal your chickens or whatever it was that's an important point that again all of these things while they we notice them when we make mental errors because of them they also have very positive effects like they're all shortcuts so if someone acts a certain way, I'm probably more likely to not get hurt by attributing their personality to, you know, how they acted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, this is the natural, uh, like, yin and yang of the last conversation we had, James, you know, around razors. So we talk about razors. That's heuristics. It's shortcuts. It's ways to, you know, cut through the noise and make very quick, rapid decisions about things. This is the other side of that, right? It's like, if that's a double-edged sword, this is the other edge of it. Right. Um, where you can cut through things, that's great, but the razor has another side, which is that you fall victim to a lot of things by having these shortcuts as part of your arsenal. So in my mind, the key to all of this is awareness. And you know, you mentioned Kahneman doesn't think you can avoid any of these. I think that's probably true. Um, but you can, on a daily basis, remind yourself of these things that you are likely to fall victim to. And in any circumstance, like if you're an investor and um, you're sitting down to make a decision about an investment, well, what are the things that are common cognitive biases that might impact your uh, rationality around a decision here? No, that's, that's, that's really true. Like, um, 
Like often with Dunning-Kruger, when you involve entrepreneurship, I call it the smoking crack bias. So like, I, I remember one time I was st starting a company and another friend of mine was starting his company at the exact same time. And I thought, man, his company is the worst idea I've ever seen, but I kind of don't want to tell him. I just was afraid to tell him. And, and then I had to ask, well, he's clearly smoking crack. Like every day he talks about how great his company is, how it's worth like hundred million, 200 million. And I was starting this company at the same time. And I had to wonder, am I smoking crack also? Like I had to, I had to figure out how to figure out that I'm not smoking crack because I can't, you can't decide for yourself whether you're right or wrong because of all these biases. So you have to figure out methods. Like, how do I know? Well, you, you know, if people are using it, I guess, if people are buying it, but even then you don't quite know, like it's very hard to figure out if you're working on, if, if your own idea is a good idea. I totally agree. And it's also why I, so I was having this exact same issue as it came to investing, right? So I have this investment fund. Um, I invest in early stage technology companies out of, and the last step of my process before investing in any company is, um, I call it the, like, how am I an idiot test? And what I do is I literally ask someone, like I talk to someone about the investment, what I'm planning to do, and I ask them, how am I an idiot? And mm. I literally say that, like, what, what is it that makes me an idiot here about how I'm thinking about this? And I want you to present me the case of how I am an idiot. And it might be that I'm, you know, misunder they might say I'm misunderstanding the market size or the go-to-market's not going to be good or there's no market here or the founder sucks or whatever it is. Um, and what I try to do is pressure test my own thinking by basically saying like, okay, if, if you were to tell me that I am an idiot in a few years, or if you were to tell me that this is going to be an, an embarrassing miss of a pick, I want to know like a pre-mortem of how was I an idiot about this investment. And I think it's like a way of kind of getting around all of these issues is just be very deliberate about figuring out how you are being an idiot on a daily basis. Yeah, that, that that's really important because it, it, it's, it goes along with this idea. Maybe we talked about this before. You only get real information from negative information. So if like, if, if your friend had said, oh, you're not an idiot, you're a genius, your idea is great. That actually gives you zero information <laughs> because you don't know his, you're doing a fundamental attribution error. If you think, oh, well, my idea is great. My friend just said it's great. And I gave him the chance to say it's bad. You don't know what his situation or context is. He could be in a rush and he's just like, wants to get the hell off the phone with you. And this is the technique to get off the phone. Like, don't worry. It's a great idea. I got to go. But if he actually says, no, nah, I don't like this part. That's gotta be truth because there's not really any other reason for him to, to, to tear your idea apart other than it's, it's specific and it's true. Yeah, and especially when the other person doesn't have skin in the game to the positive, right? The, the one thing, you know, I worked in um, private equity for a number of years and the, the kind of the two that always jumped out to me were confirmation bias, like this idea that, um, you know, you, you see the things that confirm your thesis and you ignore the things that refute it. Um, and then sunk cost, where if you're spending six months on a deal and you're five and a half months into that, and you learn something that maybe tells you that you shouldn't do the deal, you have this inkling feeling in the back of your head that you're like, well, I spent so much time on it, so should we just do it, you know, in spite of this new information? Because you're like attaching all of this prior investment to this decision that should be an objective decision just on this thing. So I saw this for a long period of time. You try to circumvent it in a fund context by having detractors, right? Like we would have this thing called the red team that would um, – 
their their sole job during the investment committee was to ask the questions that would you know end this investment. But at the end of the day, we're still an investment fund that is paid for making investments, not for turning down investments. And so everyone's vested interest, no matter whether they're on the red team or not, is in making investments and in having ideas that create investments. And so it's a challenge of um, of being an investor to find people that don't have a vested interest um, in the situation going through to tell you why you're being an idiot. Like, what are you completely missing? Um, what are the things that you haven't thought about? The reasons this is going to fail, et cetera. Because that objective perspective that isn't at all tied to the economics or to the situation at hand is really, really critical. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, You want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. 
I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. particularly with such high stakes things like investing or entrepreneurship, being somewhat aware that you could be experiencing Dunning-Kruger effect or any of these, is very, it's very important to not assume you're not suffering from a cognitive bias. Like, and, and you gotta figure out how to test each cognitive bias. Survivorship bias is another good one where you write in the thread, history is written by the victors. And just reading, Jeff Bezos talk about how he was successful and let's say he gives a list of 10 techniques and you say, well, I'm going to use these 10 techniques and I'll be successful. Also, you don't know. It might be Jeff Bezos is one out of a thousand who used these techniques and the other 999 all died early. Yeah. I mean, we, we all, um, this one is one that we all fall victim to. Like every self-help book in the world, every business book, every business story, it's all survivorship bias when you break it down because all of these guys too, you know, when they get asked about their life and about the decision points, um, you know, they're like, well, you know, Jeff Bezos' big thing is the regret minimization framework. And he's like, yeah, when I was at D Shaw, I just thought about uh, would I regret not taking this shot at starting Amazon? And I realized I would regret it. And so I went and did it and I left my, you know, seven-figure job to go do it. Well, that's, that's survivorship bias, right? It's like, yeah, it's really easy to say in hindsight that you would have regretted this. I would love to see the like thing of him sitting down and actually having written that at the time. Um, and then I will believe it. But those things are always, you know, he, he started talking about it for the first time after it was a billion dollar company. And so like, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, I would have regretted not starting this billion dollar company. Um, it's much harder to say when you're leaving a seven figure job for zero salary and doing it. So I, I sort of, um, I sort of, uh, will take the short on that, uh, on, on the idea that he actually said that before, but survivorship bias 
is something that like we all contribute to whether we know it or not. You know, when we like share the stories of all these winners and the people that double mortgaged their house and then ended up having the billion dollar outcome. Well, for every single one of those people that double mortgaged their house and then started a billion dollar company, like James Dyson is one of them, um, there's probably a hundred people that double mortgaged their house and then went bankrupt and you've never heard of them. Yeah. Um, the story with survivorship bias that is the best one, which I absolutely love, is um, this World War II story of the the planes. So uh, the story is basically uh, the U.S. was trying to figure out uh, where to put more reinforcement into their battle planes um, during World War II. And basically analysts came in because analysts are so smart, and they plotted the bullet holes that were on the planes that had come back from battle. And they basically showed you know, all of the bullet holes were like on the ends of the wings and kind of on the inside of the wings and then on the tail. And so they sat down and they were like, that's where we have to add the armor because that's where the planes are getting shot. And there was this one smart statistician there named Abraham Wald who said, absolutely not. You have to do the exact opposite of what you just said. And everyone was so confused. And what he pointed out was that if you only armor the places from the seen planes, and what he meant by seen planes was the ones that were actually coming back and making it back from battle, you were missing the information from the unseen planes, which were the ones that actually got downed in battle. And so what he reasoned was that the unseen planes had been shot in the areas that were actually fatal. And so that was where you needed to add it, which was the areas that, you know, the the planes that came back didn't have bullet holes um, because they had actually managed to stay up. So based on his observation, the military ended up reinforcing the engine and all these other vulnerable parts, and it ended up saving hundreds, thousands of lives in the war. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good story. And another, of course, the one of the classic stories on this is, oh, if you want to be successful, just drop out of Harvard because, uh, well, Mark Zuckerberg did it and Bill Gates did it and, I don't know, Larry Ellison did it and a bunch of others, so it probably works. And that, of course, doesn't. Yeah, it definitely doesn't. The flip side, to your point earlier about some of these having positives, is that survivorship bias has probably contributed to some of the greatest unbelievable world-changing um, technology innovations and successes in history. Like if um, if a young Mark Zuckerberg hadn't looked up to uh, Bill Gates uh, for having dropped out of Harvard, does he drop out of Harvard? I don't know. Uh, maybe it contributed to the fact that he felt like it was okay and that it was an okay path to do. And maybe then he doesn't go create what is one of the you know largest, most world-changing companies, for better or for worse, um, of our of our lifetimes. So I think there is a positive side to this. It obviously also leads a lot of people off a cliff um, that probably shouldn't shouldn't have pursued things that way. Yeah, and I, I guess you're right. So the positive thing is that kind of encourages us as a species for some individuals to take more risks than they otherwise should. Uh, but I think you definitely have to be aware that, hey, like Mark Zuckerberg should, hopefully was aware, probably was aware that, hey, Bill Gates is an exception. This is survivorship bias. So it's an acceptable path, but I just have to limit, I just have to understand my risks a little bit more than just, hey, Bill Gates did it, so it must be good. Yeah, it's always about making sure that you realize that there is silent evidence. And like thinking about the unseen in a situation, there's that story of the shipwreck and... um Someone goes to look at the shipwreck. I forget what it is. It's like ancient Greek maybe. Um, goes to look at the shipwreck and the person says, you know, look, all of the people that survived the shipwreck prayed, um, you know, during the shipwreck that they were going to survive. So therefore God is real. 
And the person responds to him and says like, well, did you interview the people that died, whether they had prayed as well during the shipwreck? Um, And it's a very astute point, right? Of like, okay, you can't just take evidence from the people that survived and apply it and create these conclusions. You have to be able to evaluate the silent and hidden evidence in a situation. Yeah, and which in a weird way is going to be related to your next one, but this is this is a different type of mental error, but ad hominem. So explain this one. Yeah, it's an attack on the person. Um, this is a, it's a logical fallacy, you know, an error in reasoning basically that, um, you know, leads to most Twitter fights and, and probably a lot of political fights as well. It's, you know, attacking the person rather than their argument. So someone proposes something that you disagree with and rather than, um, you know, rather than refuting the logic of the points they are making, you refute the person and you kind of talk about their negative characteristics and how that makes them um, unable to make an argument. So this, this, by the way, happens to me all the time. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll make state an opinion about something, and then somebody will say, says the guy who did X, Y, and Z. And, and so then suddenly, like, my opinion means nothing because... They're, it's like the fundamental attribution error. They're attributing some characteristics to me because of other things I did that have nothing to do with the argument. Yeah. I mean, this is like Twitter 101, right? It's like the, the toxic side of Twitter 101 or the toxic side of you know our political discourse 101. Um, this is everything that you see in a political debate, right? Like if you watch the 2016 elections at all and Hillary and Donald Trump, like in both directions, by the way, I'm not even making a political statement. I think everyone um, in the political world has become accustomed to doing this. And, you know, all the negative ads you see on television during political cycles, it's not about like, hey, this person does not have a valid point on Medicare and um, here's why their logic is flawed on the way that we're going to fund X, Y, or Z. It literally says like, this person cheated on their wife, so how can you let them make decisions about your government? Or this person, um, you know, used illegal funds, so how can you allow them to have integrity? You know, how, how can you expect them to have integrity about uh, foreign policy. And like the two are, they make no sense. It has nothing to do with their decision-making around it, but you're questioning the judgment and the character of the person and pointing out flaws in the person um, as a means to uh, refute whatever their reasoning, logic, or argument is. But, okay, so first question I have is, do you think social media and the internet in general has increased this? Because as an example, during the 2020 elections, my wife and I had just watched the debates, which was just arguing back and forth, attacking each other back and forth. And then we watched the 1960 presidential debates between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And it was so polite. Like these guys never attacked each other. They hated each other, but they never attacked each other. They, they talked five, 10 minutes each about the issues really deep about like what this farm bill might mean for the average citizen. And and, you know, it seems like, you know, the, the flip side is with social media, you know, no argument is is over in social media until so, uh, eventually someone calls someone else Hitler. And then every argument degrades into that on social media. And that, of course, that doesn't happen in person or in, in real life. It only seems to happen on, on the Internet. So, yes. I, I mean, in short, I think social media has made this 100 times worse because the proliferation of dunking and negative information and name calling um, is now at viral scale. 
I, I mean, the the shareability of those dunks or the negative comments or um, um, you know or toxic language, etc., is um, is massive now. I mean, John, I don't know if you read this new Atlantic article that Jonathan Haidt put out. Um, it was entitled "Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid." Um, and basically, he postulates that social media and the dawn of Facebook has um, led to uh, a unique unraveling of American society. And I, I thought it made a lot of interesting points. Um, it, and it's it's an article that's well well worth reading. I, I have this thought experiment that I'd love to run by you on this exact point, which is. Um, I don't know if you've heard this Mike Tyson quote, but Mike Tyson has this quote, which I'm going to paraphrase, which he says, um, social media has made y'all way too comfortable with disrespecting someone and not getting punched in the face for it. Um, and you know, in classic Mike Tyson fashion, it is a, um, you know, a kind of an absurd statement, but one that actually has quite a bit of interesting underlying meaning, which is basically the costs of being disrespectful and rude directly to someone, um, on social media are effectively zero because I'm hiding behind a computer. I can call you any name I want right now, James. You can't do anything about it. You might be able to call me names back, but you certainly can't punch me in the face. And in the 1950s, if we were on the street, and I said something to your face, and I said something rude or disrespectful to you, you might punch me in the face. Um, and I would know when I was saying that, that there was a 10% chance that you were going to punch me in the face. And so in the era of social media with no cost, suddenly there is outsized upside to saying negative things um, because it gets lots of likes and shares and people love it and it's funny. Um, and there's no cost. So people do it at scale and it proliferates. And so it's led to this unraveling. So the thought experiment that I have, which I've just recently started thinking about, is imagine a world where you had uh, every single device that you got came standard with a uh, a rubber fist, uh, like a big rubber fist, and an AI that detected when um, direct, rude, or derogatory or disrespectful language was being posted. And every time it detected that, it had a one in ten chance, like a Russian roulette, of punching you squarely in the face. Um, and you knew that this existed and that it was there. How would our world and all of the discourse change in that environment? Well, I, I think I think you kind of answered the question with the Mike Tyson quote, which is that the higher the consequences for a decision, and the decision might be what you call somebody, or the decision might be a buying decision or whatever, the higher the consequences, the more likely it is you're going to uh, behave better. And 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 again, this could be why all of these cognitive biases have evolved because 40,000 years ago, the basically for the past 40,000 years, consequences have gone down in a fairly straight line. Like 40,000 years ago or a thousand years ago, you'd get killed for having too much Dunning-Kruger bias or having, uh, doing too much ad, ad hominem attacks or doing too much of, you know, survivorship bias. You, the consequences was were dying or going to prison or or being broke and penniless or whatever. And now, decision making is almost a commodity, or 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 stating your opinion is is, a, is almost a commodity on social media, and there's no consequences for it. So, and so, not only have the consequences come down linearly over time, as you point out. The benefits of it have got gone exponentially increasing. Um, yeah, because like take Ad Hominem, for instance. If let's say you make a reasonable argument about, I don't know, vaccines, and I say, yeah, but you're, you know, 
uh, a junior high school dropout and you've been divorced 12 times, so whatever, I'm more likely to win that argument on social media because I said that. Yeah, 37 likes, 14 retweets for what you just said right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even yeah, though it had nothing I, to do with my argument. Particularly if I use humor with it. Like, so, so then it'll get shared even more. So, so I think, so the, there is a positive then. The positive is um, if you don't like somebody and you don't like what they're saying, you could destroy them with a powerful ad hominem attack, attacking them, even though you, even if you know it's not the right thing to do. The other positive is, and this is a healthier positive, is that if I state an opinion that I really believe, and then the first or only responses from people is, this guy is an idiot, or this guy is just loves controversies. That's the only reason he's doing it. I think to myself, ah, they're only responding with ad hominem attacks. So it gives me a higher level of belief that I'm correct if the only response is with ad hominem attacks. Yeah, absolutely. It's like an anti-signal, right? Yeah. Um, I think Paul Graham, um, or maybe it was Mark Andreessen tweeted something the other day about like, you can tell the quality of the idea by how enraged the opposition gets to it when when you raise it. It's like every idea, in order to have outsized returns, it has to have massive opposition at the time when you propose it because you know the highest returns in life come from things that sound stupid or crazy at the time when they're proposed. It's like, um, I don't know, Galileo, when he was talking about the things he was talking about, he was ostracized, right? He was cast off as like a complete pariah, ridiculous. Only hundreds of years later was it proven that he was correct and he was a genius. Um, and it makes me think about that in the modern age. Like what are the, who are the Galileos of today? The people who, um, you know, are, are doing uh, or saying or writing or having ideas around things that are completely ridiculous that we're ostracizing that we're saying like that is absolutely idiotic you're an idiot you know ad hominem attacks nonstop that 50 years from now 100 years from now will be a genius and well, the, the problem with this though is, is survivorship bias because like galileo maybe there were a lot of people proposing all sorts of crazy things and you know they all you know we don't know you know, they all followed Mark Andreessen's advice by making like some sort of outrageous belief or claim or whatever, but only Galileo survived. And, and yeah, the difference today is that um, crazy ideas proliferate on the internet really well, um, as we all know. And so, I, like in Galileo's time, I think it would have probably been really hard to get any distribution on a crazy idea. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, you had to like physically distribute pamphlets or whatever, and you were probably like the raving idiot in the town square handing around pamphlets of something and no one was taking them. Um, but in this day and age, you can be the raving idiot and you can be, you know, on social media saying something that sounds completely crazy and actually get a lot of traction. People will share it, positive or negative. Um, and your ideas kind of can go through the gauntlet on a grand scale. Um, but anyway, interesting thought experiment, I think, well, um, to, I mean, uh, my, to consider. My, my own personal experience with this lately, and, and my listeners have heard me talk about this before, but I'll talk about it in the context of an ad hominem attack, which is, you know, I wrote this article about New York City, and I pointed out all these problems why New York City is in big trouble. I wrote this two years ago, and everyone, nobody addressed, like I, I really was trying hard. Nobody addressed the actual issues I brought up, and even someone like Jerry Seinfeld wrote a, a full one-page op-ed in the New York Times just attacking me personally. Like he didn't address the issues at all. And so I kind of told me on the one hand, oh, this is a good sign people could only come up with an ad hominem attack. On the other hand, it was like 
ongoing. It like never stopped. But now that some of the data is coming out, I said the data won't be coming out for at least two years. That will show what I'm saying. And now some of this data is coming out and people are, it's funny how people are saying, oh, well, I knew this all along, blah, blah, blah. Like no one, it's just weird, the, the reactions. But whenever I've been in a debate and someone starts with the ad hominem attack, A, it always tells me I'm onto something. And B, what's good is if you just point out that's an ad hominem attack, I'm happy to talk about the subject or we could talk about me for the entire debate. That usually stops the the argument. Yeah, it's um, you know, and I hadn't I hadn't seen that article. I, I think I vaguely now remember um, when you wrote this, but we didn't know each other at the time. Um, but it's 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 actually quite sad that that is like the first place that people go um, to um, just like attack a person. I think there are very few things in the world that you can do as a human being that truly negate your right to have a perspective or an opinion. Like very, very few things. Um, and if you're a free speech advocate and you believe in the right to um, you know, create your own arguments and share your ideas publicly, um, it's kind of sad that like all these people that advocate for those things will then resort to ad hominem when it's something that they just disagree with or that they think is, is silly. But here's the other positive though to the ad hominem attack is that let's say you say cars are bad. And I say, of course you say that you've driven drunk 20 times and killed five people. So of course you're going to say that. So I just did this ad hominem attack and you could say, Hey, that's not fair. That's an ad hominem attack. And I could say, look, I'm judging your opinion. I, I think it's correct that I'm judging your opinion based on your, what I know about your personality. Uh, yeah. And that feels somewhat related, right? Like if, um, you know, if a politician proposes a bunch of ideas around, um, you know, health policy and they are a, um, you know, they're a known denier of a bunch of things that we consider to be standard under the scientific mainstream, you know, for protecting people and citizens and children, et cetera. Uh, that you could argue is an ad hominem attack if you attack the person for that, but it also feels relevant to the them creating health policy. And so I think there's like, there's levels to what ad hominem attack looks like. Like if you're going to say this about New York, New York City is dead forever, here's why. And I turn to you and I'm like, well, James, you know, you, you know, you did this when you were in high school and like you got kicked out and so you're clearly an idiot and so I'm not going to listen to this argument. Uh, that's like, you know, that's layer five, whatever the farthest out layer is of this. Like, you know, it has nothing to do with your ability to opine on, um, you know, why a city is likely to thrive or not. It's also just this funny thing of like saying New York City is dead was considered super controversial. All the VCs and like everyone in the world in tech are saying San Francisco is dead for the entirety of the last, you know, two years. And now it's like mainstream. At first, people were pretty, you know, annoyed about everyone saying that. Now it's sort of a mainstream idea and thought. And so it also goes to the point of, um, you know, things rolling into the mainstream. I disagree with you, by the way. I don't think New York City is dead forever, but uh, we can save that for another day. It's also like a man in the arena thing, which I think about a lot. Um, if you're willing to write and publish something that you know is going to be um, not agreed with by everyone or that's going to be controversial, like you're putting yourself in the arena. 
and the ultimate arena, you know, especially social, you know, with the digital age, you're really putting yourself out there. And to me, that is something to be respected and admired, no matter what, whether I agree with the person or not, they're putting themselves in the arena. It's so easy to stand on the sidelines and throw rocks at that person, but it's much harder to actually be the person that goes and stands in the arena and is willing to kind of come out bloodied. Um, so I, I just like, from a fundamental standpoint, anyone that's willing to put themselves in the arena um, and kind of share in a public stage an idea that may or may not you know, resonate or be controversial, I just think that's something to be respected. But then this is what I had to be concerned about, which is that so many people attack me that in a weird way, there's sunk costs here. Like I didn't want to have to, I, I wanted to write the article because I was concerned about New York and all these problems I was seeing, but I didn't want to have to defend or hope for New York City's death just to prove wrong all the people who hated me. So there was like a sunken cost all of a sudden where I suffered this emotional cost. And so now I had to hope for New York City dying. And I had to be aware that I don't actually want New York City to die. I was just kind of reporting on what I was seeing. Yeah, and you also weren't profiting from it, right? Like I think no. the um, the COVID one is a, has been another lightning rod, like all of these kind of, um, you know, COVID influencers that have, that have risen over the course of the last, you know, few years since all of this happened, like for the first time in history, public, you know, my dad's a, a public health guy. He was the chairman of the public health school at Harvard for a long time, not really involved in COVID because most of his work is like international development, but it was the first time in history that public health people could be famous. Like they were so irrelevant for the longest time in history. No, I mean, my dad has written articles about um, global pandemics in the past. No one ever cared. Like no one read that stuff. It's like small IMF publication, whatever. No one cared. Suddenly all these people were famous and there was all this, you know, there was the rise of the COVID influencer on social media and all of these places. And I think part of those people being such a lightning rod was this perception that they were capitalizing on something that was happening. Um, for rightly or wrongly, by the way, like, and I'm not making a statement in either direction on that. Um, but with your case relative to something like that, it wasn't like you were shorting New York, you know, real estate or something like that, right? You're kind of like making a statement about something and you're not hoping it's correct actually. And so I think part of what made people angry and what led to it being such a lightning rod around COVID was there was a feeling that these people were benefiting from a, a level of chaos and that they actually didn't have an incentive in the game to have the chaos end in the near term. Right. And, and I think, I think then, and in, and in my case, the challenge, the challenge that I had to be aware of was another mental error that you point out, which is confirmation bias. So for instance, it was very easy for me. There are lots of data come out all, all the time. And, oh, rental prices are at an all-time high. Uh, the census showed that New York City grew, uh, blah, blah, blah. So I had to make sure I didn't have what you call, what is called confirmation bias, which is that I'm only going to look at the evidence that supports my case, and I'm going to assume all the other evidence is statistically wrong somehow, which by the way, it all is. And all the evidence that supports my case has been correct. But other than that, I try not to have confirmation bias. <laughs> well, I'm sure it, the thing with confirmation bias is it goes both ways, right? So anyone that's your detractor is going to grab all of the evidence that fits them and ignore the stuff that doesn't. Um, like me, right? I'm going to tell you when I, I could, because I disagree with you on this, I'm going to be like, well, James, you know, last summer in New York was the best summer in the history of the world. Um, and it was the most fun and the vibrant culture and things were back and restaurants are vibrant again and people are moving here. All my friends are moving here that are young from the Bay Area, et cetera. So I'm going to point to all the things that I see, most of which is anecdotal, by the way, and not evidence-based. So I can at least acknowledge my own bias there. Um, 
but it cuts both ways. And so then we're getting to a fight that's like on weird, uneven ground where neither one of us, we're both biased. Neither one of us is acknowledging, you know, a level playing field of the data that matters because what is data now, right? Like Donald Trump was the one that said it. You said like, you know, alternative facts, um, which whatever the hell that means, I don't know. But um, what data is the correct data is like now where things have gone to. Well, well, and also it's not just that. It's like what data is correct, but also what data and what interpretations are correct. So for instance, I'll, I'll, uh, you're right. Like all my detractors would point out evidence that everything's great, and and everybody who agreed with me would point out all this evidence that says I was right. And I don't respond to either of these things because I kind of think the story is not done. And also, I have to be careful about confirmation bias. It's just too obvious to fall into that trap. But I'll I'll give one example which could go either way. So rental prices are soaring in Manhattan. And so the on uh, one interpretation is is because more people than ever are moving to Manhattan, it seems. And so demand is high for rentals and that's the evidence that so then so when rents are going up and that's evidence that things are great. The other interpretation is well look, there was an eviction moratorium in Manhattan. People weren't allowed to be evicted. So that drastically reduced supply of apartments that were available for rent um, because 800,000 apartments, you know, weren't even paying rent. So landlords had to charge higher prices on other apartments. And, and that's why rental prices are higher. So I, I don't know which interpretation is correct. Either one could be correct. And there's many cases like that. And so my feeling is we just don't know the full story, but even if we did, I'm still not going to respond because people are only going to attack based or, or agree based on confirmation bias. And there's, there's no way, there's no way to fight it, particularly when you're doing, there's no way to fight any of these mental errors. If you're fighting the masses, <laughs> it's true. You're better off just not responding. That's yeah. like been my tactic with, I respond to any criticism that's in good faith is kind of my like bar. And if someone criticizes me in bad faith, I just, I mute them immediately because I don't want to deal with it. I don't, I don't, block, I don't even actually. know what good faith is though, because, yeah. you know, like, like I had friends who say, oh, attacking, you only wrote right? this. I had friends who said, you only wrote this because you like controversy. And, I, and I'd say that would be the worst writer in the world if that was my only reason. <laughs> um, but, you know, in good faith, they were trying to stand by their opinion, but still be friends with me and try to understand in their heads why I was doing something. And... Otherwise, maybe they felt they couldn't be friends with me anymore. And so it's hard to really dispute anyone says because nobody really knows what errors are going on in their head. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was in um, Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets, I think was where I read it. But she, she comments on this paper that basically found that two people, two rational people can look at the exact same um, data and statistics and apply a very different set of conclusions to it. Uh, and it was this really interesting paper of like, it doesn't matter what the facts are because people just take whatever their mental map of reality is and apply it on top of the data. Particularly with like social data, there's so many different ways you can interpret any statistics. Statistics are discrete. Like they're based on very discrete facts, but our understanding of the situation is based on very non-discrete things. Like there's lots of gray areas and nuances why something might happen. So like Annie Duke's book was ultimately about poker, which is that you could make a good decision, but have bad results. Because if I have, if I have a 30% chance to win five times my investment, 
I should make that bet all the time because in the long run, I'll make money. But on that one particular hand, there's a 70% chance I'm going to lose money. So uh, the correct decision would be to probably lose money on that one hand. Mm -hmm. But in real life, it's a little harder because there's so many things that are not where we don't really know the probabilities and we don't really understand the underlying statistics. Like in the rent example, you had to take into account this phenomenon that supply might be reduced because of this weird eviction moratorium. We just don't know. The world is insanely complex. That's my takeaway from all of this. <laughs> There's no easy answers to anything. Our brains play tricks on us constantly. Uh, we are an amazingly advanced species that is also inherently extremely stupid. Um, and you just have to make the best of what you have. Yeah, and and we're stupid because of these were all shortcuts that we use for survival. That was the 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 other thing. So like. Like two two of your things that are related are the ga the gambler's fallacy and availability bias. So the gambler's fallacy is really important, and it's related to what we were just talking about, which is that humans are naturally bad with probabilities. We have a tendency to believe that past events alter future outcomes. So, like like for instance, if you just lost twenty times in a row in roulette, uh, you might think, due for hey, a win. I'm I'm due now. Yeah, now it's time. I better double down." <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, it, or the negative. There hasn't been a plane crash in a while, so I feel like we're due for a plane crash. Yeah, even though they're they're unrelated. So, uh, but this is also the availability bias, like, um, which is if 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 you if you see in the news media, for instance, oh, another shark attack in Florida, another shark attack in Florida, another shark attack in Florida. You might think shark attacks are highly probable if you go to Florida, even though they might be smaller than car crashes if you stay where you are. I mean, we we view the world as a much scarier place than it actually is. I mean, t like terrorism is a perfect example. And terrorism plays on availability bias. That's their whole game is like amplify the resources that they have by leveraging the fact that the news loves scary things because scary and death and blood sells. And it's a terrible thing, but it's the reality of the news and the news cycle. And so, you know, you see terrorist attacks happening. You literally think that, <clears throat> you know, you have a one in 10 chance of going and getting blown up um, at any point in time. And the reality is like the numbers on this stuff have always been minuscule. Um, and I mean, I even thought like my wife was going to um, Turkey a few years ago for work. And at the time there had been some issues with terrorism in Turkey. And I remember being like, really scared about my wife being in Istanbul. Um, and because I had just seen on the news a bunch of times, like different bombings or terrorist attacks, things that had happened in Istanbul at the time. And it was ridiculous. Like objectively speaking, the number of people that had been injured in terrorist attacks in Istanbul at the time relative to the population, it was like astronomically low. I mean, the probability if you just played the odds of it it was no different than like me driving in a car, you know, in a crowded area probably in terms of the probability of an injury. But in my mind, it was really bad because I had seen it all over the news and it had peppered me over and over again, CNN.com, whatever, wherever you were going to, you were getting hit with it on a daily basis with these scary images. And so that's what was popping into my mind. And so this is a tough, I mean, it's a very, very tough one to fight. And it's all... I mean, it's base rates. Like you have to think about the underlying probabilities of these things actually happen. It's um, actually 
No, that's not an example. But I was going to say the reason that kids are much more scared of um, snakes than electrical sockets. Sort of a reason, I guess, is like, you know, you're kind of taught that snakes are really scary by media and by all of the, you know, news, et cetera. And, you know, snake attacks is much scarier. But the reality is many more kids die from touching electrical sockets than from getting bit by snakes. But that's an interesting one because I think actually there is something evolutionary there that we evolved to fear snakes. Yes. And, Which is why I said I don't I don't know if yeah. it's actually an example of availability bias. It's sort of it's a nuanced example of availability bias. No, but here here's one that the, free, that the Freakonomics guys pointed out, and it's related to your terrorism example. So after 9-11, many people chose not to fly in a plane and decided to drive long distances rather than fly in a plane. And consequently, there were no airplane crashes and nobody died from flying a plane, but there were many, many more car accidents in the US that following year. So because so many more people drove, that actually availability bias, like thinking that terrorism is going to happen any day, that actually increased the deaths that ha did happen because people drove instead of flew. Pretty crazy, right? Uh, that I remember reading that example when I first uh, when I first saw it. And those guys have gotten hit. Like a lot of people um, don't love some of the science and things and ideas that are in their books, but they're highly entertaining and some amazing stuff in there. Oh yeah, they're uh, I I love those books. So um, look, Sahil Sahil Bloom, you always write such fascinating threads, and all these threads are useful because the problem with writing about cognitive biases is that a we can't really help them. But I do agree that being aware of them, even if you can't really help them, allows you to use them either way. Like understanding the nuances of ad hominem attacks helps me figure out how to deal when I'm being attacked, helps me figure out whether I'm doing it to somebody else and what that might mean, helps me to respond to people who are doing ad hominem attacks or, or loss aversion. So you, we didn't talk about loss aversion, but... Uh, or or sunken cost fallacy, we barely mentioned. But like, if I'm in an investment and it goes down, sometimes I think, oh, well, I need to stay in this until I'm at least break even. This I've already cost it already cost me this money, so I need to stay in it a little bit longer. And the reality is, being aware that I'm suffering from sunken cost fallacy means I should view this investment as if I'm making it today and forget about all the costs that happened prior and then make the decision based on that. And that's purely by being aware that these biases exist. Similar with Dunning-Kruger bias, like anything I think I'm good at, it's helpful to think I might be wrong, but I don't care because I want to, I want to be passionate enough to get better. So I'm okay thinking I'm, I'm good at it. Like I love, I love having Dunning-Kruger bias. Otherwise I would give up on everything I do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I mean, I always have a blast chatting with you about this stuff, and I'm glad this one became a pretty wide-ranging discussion. So a lot of interesting stuff in here, and excited to uh, excited to reciprocate and have you on our show soon. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. And and look, your your Twitter is Sahil Bloom, S-A-H-I-L-B-L-O-O-M, at Sahil Bloom. Anywhere else people want to find you? What, what When are you going to write your book? <laughs> Yeah, book book is in the works. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something on that front. I will I will keep people posted as it starts to come together. But um, uh, newsletter, um, you can find everything at my website, sahobloom.com. So look forward to uh, connecting with all of you. And thanks again for having me, James. Excellent, and and I'm looking forward to the next time you're back on. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks.